Well, for many in America, the rush to get things done for Christmas has left them tired and stressed. All the cards to mail and the parties to attend and the shopping lists to complete. You guys have yours all done? Does this describe you a little bit of stress this time of year? This sermon is titled, Peace by Christmas. Yes, it's a double entendre. It's a, will we have peace by the time of Christmas this year? But also, more importantly, it's about the peace that comes to us by the gift of Christmas. Our passage comes from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, a familiar passage. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. It's printed in your bulletin. It's also on your pew Bible. Follow along as I read aloud. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us this word written over 700 years before the birth of your son, powerful words to us today. In them comes peace to this world, and through them comes peace in our lives. Would you magnify these truths that we will study this morning for your glory? Amen. Peace. It's nearly impossible to find these days. I'm not joking. I was, I was on an English as a second language website that listed what they described as the 100 most common words used when talking about Christmas. Santa was at the top of the list, along with Scrooge and Chimney. Now, the list did contain some kind of semi-Christian words, such as angels and Advent and Noel and worship and star and Bethlehem. But those six words out of the 100, that was it. The rest of the words were kind of far from the true meaning of Christmas. Words such as gingerbread, 
elves, eggnog, vacation, sled, stickers? Where does that come from? (laughs) Even fruitcake and icicles and plum pudding made the list. Now, what brought me to that webpage was a, was a Google search. I was on a quest to find the top Christmas words, and I was looking in particular for a word I was certain to find, and that word is peace. But there was no peace on the list of Christmas words. Also, they left off Jesus and Christ, which is where we get Christmas after all, right? Kind of crazy. Now, you kind of expect this from a secular website, so we don't want to be quick to find fault with them. Rather, this morning, how about we turn our gaze inward? I think our time this morning will be better served looking inward at ourselves. If we look deep within ourselves, we should find that there is no greater place for peace than in our own hearts. St. Augustine, hundreds of years ago, wrote these words, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless, until they find their rest in thee. So let's ask ourselves, do we in fact associate Christmas with the peace that we ultimately long for? In our passage we just read, God spoke to the ancient prophet Isaiah. In verse 6 he says, a child will be born, a son will be given. And one of the names he calls this child that will be born is Prince of Peace. And in verse 7, we hear that he will establish a rule over this world. And we read that of the peace that he brings, there will be no end. Now, I don't know about you, but does your heart long for that? Long for true and lasting peace? And so Christmas is a time for us to look back at the birth of this peace child that God has given us. We must see this, that he alone is capable of making peace on earth and peace in our hearts. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Hopefully we will marvel in that peace by Christmas, which comes through us through the child of peace who is born unto us. And because, and because he is our peace, we must set our hope on him. We will endeavor this looking at three headings. First, the darkness. Then, the deliverance, and lastly, the dominion. The context or the backdrop into which Christmas comes isn't bright lights or pretty music and nice shiny things. The backdrop into which Christmas breaks into is what? It's darkness. Look at the text, the first two verses. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The message of Christmas is that light has shone into darkness. The peace child is born into a land full of gloom. It's important for us to understand the context of this passage, this text. It's a prophecy of a child being born. But Isaiah lived 700 years before Christ. During the time, the nation of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom, which they called Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah, At this time, both nations were experiencing great financial prosperity. 
And for the first time in a long time, they weren't being attacked by the Assyrians from the north. But all this was about to change. As Isaiah was sent by God to bring a warning to the people. Isaiah foretells a time when calamity will come upon the people of God. See, the people, though they looked good on the outside, within, inside they were morally bankrupt. They were full of greed and materialism. Crime and violence and injustice were rampant. The people had the outward appearance, appearance of religious devotion, but their hearts were far from God. Women were obsessed with physical beauty, but had no concern for any inner beauty. Leaders called evil good and good evil. They had this false appearance of helping the poor, but they actually held them in poverty. They lied. They obstructed justice. Sounds very much like our society today. Isaiah is saying that though things look peaceful and prosperous, calamity is coming. And the tribes in the very northern part of the kingdom will bear the brunt. These are the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, beyond the Georgian, Jordan in the region of Galilee. This region was continually being run over by foreign armies. And they were always being influenced by their pagan neighbors. So that's the context. The context is this false sense of peace that is about to be shattered. Assyria will attack. Gloom and anguish is just around the corner. So God has Isaiah speak a word of grace and peace to sustain them during those days. And to them, to us, Isaiah says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isaiah says that those who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now, what does darkness refer to? Well, it's not a physical darkness, right? Because if it was physical darkness, then Thomas Alva Edison will be the savior of the world. No, darkness has three meanings. One, darkness is ignorance. We speak of people as being dim-witted and unenlightened. So this darkness here is ignorance of God. There was a popular comedian after World War II named Spike Milligan. He was a man who wanted these words on his gravestone. All right, you ready? See, I told you I was ill. (laughs) That seemed funnier on paper. All right. (laughs) See, I told you I was ill. Spike was once asked if he ever prayed. He answered, yes, I do pray desperately all the time. I just have no idea who I'm praying to. Many are in the dark when it comes to knowing their creator. Secondly, darkness is where we hide to keep our lives from God. Jesus said these words once. He says, light uh, has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. We hide, isn't it true? We hide our true selves from others. We let them see a little bit of who we are, but we don't let them go all the way in. We are by nature people who hide. We don't want people to know the things we said or done. And we even think, though, that we can hide ourselves from God. We were born rebels, and we prefer to stay in the dark. Thirdly, darkness speaks of death. Leo Tolstoy wrote in his confession these words. Listen, he said, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? 
Think about that. Is there anything, any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? See, death casts a dark shadow over us all. And Christmas tells us that God has shown a great light. It shines into our darkness. Jesus' closest disciple, John, wrote these words about Jesus at the beginning of his gospel. He said, True light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. My friends, this is the incarnation, right? The one who made the world came into the world, and he is called true light. John says true light came into the world, but even his own people did not receive him. Modern man, mankind, we're like this too. Even at Christmas time, people hear of God's loving gift to the world, and yet they receive him not. But those who do receive him, God gives the right to become children of God. My friends, what is the proper, what is the proper effect of God's light coming into our darkness? What is it? We see it in verse 3. Is it not joy? Look, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. My friends, when the light of Christ shines upon us, it gives us joy. At least it should. Now, I'm not sure what kind of darkness perhaps you're currently experiencing. Maybe things are humming along quite well for you. I think we've all though been alive long enough to know that we all enter into times of darkness. And sometimes these, this darkness can be deep and lasting. And so will you allow Christ to shine his light into your darkness? Will you let the child of peace take you from gloom and anguish into light and joy? Will you experience his peace by Christmas? That's the darkness. Now for the deliverance. Verses 1 through 3 tell Christmas is about God, uh, God's light penetrating into a dark world. Verses 4 through 6 tell us how. God brings about a victory of deliverance. Each verse, verse 4, 5, and 6, begin with the word for. Each verse is a little bit confusing, but trust me, the, the effort spent deciphering them is well worth it. Verse 4 tells us that our deliverance is the gift of God's grace. How so? Well, the wording is reminiscent of Moses in the Exodus out of Egypt. The words yoke and staff for the shoulder and rod of his oppressor. It's all imagery of of captivity and bondage and forced labor. But then we read the second half. You have broken all this as on the day of Midian. Now, who is the you? The you is God. This is God's doing. And it's likened to some sort of work that he did on a day of Midian. Now, most of us here are not all that familiar with what that's talking about. What, was, what happened on the day of Midian? What does it have to do with Christmas? Everything. You can read the story in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, chapters 6 through 8. There's a man named Gideon who was raised up by God to go and to rescue some of the children of God. Which children? 
those that were in the land beyond the Jordan, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And how did Gideon win this battle of Midian? Listen, he won it in such a way that you knew it wasn't Gideon or the people who won the battle. Gideon started with 32,000 soldiers. And God says, you know what, that's far too many soldiers because you're going to win this battle and you're going to think you did it, that I didn't do it for you. And so God, God says, Gideon, you're going to go up and fight this battle with 300 men. And they didn't even carry swords. They carried what? Trumpets, glass jars, and light. Their torches carried light into the deep darkness. And then the trumpet sounded. And then they smashed the glass jars. And the enemy flees. Now, how is the birth of Jesus like this? Well, the deliverance that you and I need is completely a work of God. It's God's idea to send the peace child. You and I had nothing to do with it other than the sin that needs atoning for. As good as humanity is at times, we can never bring about the peace we long for, right? No matter how many lessons we get in being good and kind and friendly, we all harbor bitterness. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And so true and lasting peace, what? It must come from above. Now, verse 5 tells us the extent of the deliverance. Every boot of the warrior in battle and every bloody garment will be burned as fuel for the fire. What if this is saying is this? It's saying that there's going to be a battle, it's going to be final, and it's going to be decisive. Our, our, our liberator, our deliverer, will not only defeat all the evil forces, he will put a, a final end to conflict itself. One commentator writes, every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. The grammar in verse 5 is in the passive voice, which means God is the victor. It is not our accomplishment. One, another commentator said this, it is as if we step onto the battlefield after the victory is won, and all we do is celebrate. My friends, this is not a picture of the cross. God makes peace with us by sending his son. God didn't have to. God is not obligated to do so. God sent his son to do away with sin once and for all. Jesus was born so that he could die. Understand this. Christmas happened because Easter was first on the calendar. The peace child was born to give his life. On the cross, all your sin, all of my sin, every last dirty boot of it, every last bloody shirt of it will be rolled up and burned. That's what he has done for us. And now for what should be perhaps perplexing, <laughs> the most perplexing verse, perplexing. Uh, I need that English as a second language uh, help. There we go. <laughs> verse 6 says that God's solution is a baby. God's response to our darkness and suffering and rebellion is a baby. But it's no ordinary baby. Look at what it says. To us, a child is born. This speaks of Jesus' humanity. Then right after that says, to us, a son is given. This speaks of Jesus' divinity. God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son has always existed. 
and the world that we live in was made through him. But Jesus, born of the virgin, the son becomes, listen, a living being in the world that he created. It should utterly blow our minds that God became human. And he wasn't teleported from heaven as a fully grown man, beard and all, you know. He didn't come with an entourage or with stores of cash. He came as a vulnerable infant, born in an obscure town on a dusty road to Jerusalem. Born to parents from Nazareth, of all places, raised in Galilee. We also know that this is no ordinary child when we read what his name is to be. Look at the second part of verse 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I don't know if any of you are pregnant and thinking about baby names. But naming children can put a certain amount of pressure on them, right? Especially when you call a child something like Mighty God. Can you imagine Joseph and Mary at the school gate? That's our boy, Mighty God. We have high hopes for him. Mighty God is a difficult name to live up to. Unless, of course, you are Mighty God. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor speaks of Jesus' compassionate wisdom. Mighty God refers to his unlimited divine power. Everlasting Peace speaks of his divine care and his provision for his people. And Prince of Peace speaks of Jesus' kingdom rule, a rule that brings ultimate peace. Shalom. The Prince of Peace will one day do away with all that is wrong with this world. It's what your heart longs most for. And on that day, he will usher in an eternal time when he writes all things for all time. Which leads to our final point, the dominion. Look, God created human beings And he made us in his image. And he gave us great purpose to reflect his glory into this world and to have dominion over it. Dominion's a good thing. What a worthy calling from God. But it's true we fail at dominion, don't we? We can hardly control our own thoughts and our own tongues, let alone have glorious dominion over our relationships and within our communities. But the peace child has dominion. Where we lack, listen, he pardons, he restores, he has dominion. Christ has risen from the grave, and so he sits on a throne, he has dominion over all things in heaven and earth. To be a Christian means then that we've received the Prince of Peace's pardon, and we've bowed our knees to his gracious and good rule over our lives. This is our right and proper response to who Jesus is. He's no longer the baby in the manger. He has grown. 
He is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace who sits on a throne and he will return again. And so the proper response for every human being is to bow our knee to this great king. The theologian Abraham Kuyper once wrote these words. Listen, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We humans have messed up this world. God comes down and he says, I'm buying it. I'm going to fix it. Place your hope in me. That's the promise of verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. I'm not sure what kind of peace you're settling for or what kind of peace you would like to see. But God has given us a peace through his son, a peace that will forever expand and will know no end. Most likely you're thinking, that just sounds too good to be true. Just give me a halfway good-looking and agreeable spouse and a kid who will care for me in my old age, and you know what? That's peace for me. Yeah, that's funny, isn't that, little one? But my hope is that you see that God doesn't just give us some small, partially satisfying peace. He gives us his peace. And his peace is the ultimate peace. And it's the peace our hearts most long for. So the question is, will you receive this Prince of Peace? Will you bow your knee to him? Will you accept his gracious, loving, kind rule over your life? So we looked at peace by Christmas. Christmas is a time to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord that was brought into our broken and dark world. Christmas is a time for us to soberly reflect upon our need for peace, peace with our fellow man, but even more importantly, peace with our creator. Christmas is a time to look back at the birth of the peace child, but also to look back at his death and resurrection on our behalf as the peace child, as the prince of peace, and also to look forward to his return. At his first coming, the peace child came to do away with our sins so that we may be at peace with God. At his promised second coming, which is yet to come, the peace child will once and for all do away with all that opposes him and bring a peace that will know no end. Question is, do you look forward with eager expectation for the return of the Prince of Peace? And does this hope of peace to come give you joy in life today? In Wisconsin, there's a Christian-run residence for mentally disabled people. It's called the Shepherd's Home. It has a problem with dirty windows. See, many of its residents are severely disabled, but they love Jesus And they understand that he has promised to return someday and give them new minds and new bodies. So why the dirty windows? The superintendent says every day some of them go to the windows and press their noses against the glass looking for him. Do your windows have smudges too? 
Do you long for the return of the child of peace who is now the prince of peace? May God, the God of peace, give you peace by Christmas through his son, the child of peace. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we so often just look for peace in momentary things like gifts and cars and careers and bank accounts, things that will be stripped away at our death for sure. We thank you that you give us a peace that surpasses all these things, peace that triumphs even over the grave. It's a peace you give us through the birth of your son who lived and died and rose again for us. May our hearts be attuned to this message, we pray. Amen.